0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dear Enemy by Jean Webster, Part 12 The John Greer Home, June 9th. Dear Judy you are an awful family for an impressionable young girl to visit how can you expect me to come back and settle down contentedly to institution life after witnessing such a happy picture of domestic concord as the pendleton household presents all the way back in the train instead of occupying myself with two novels four magazines and one box of chocolates that your husband thoughtfully provided i spent the time in a mental review of the young man of my acquaintance to see if I couldn't discover one as nice as Jervis. I did. A little nicer, I think. From this day on he is the marked-down victim, the destined prey. I shall hate to give up the asylum after getting so excited over it, but unless you are willing to move it to the capital, I don't see any alternative. The train was awfully late. We sat and smoked on a siding while two accommodations and a freight dashed past. I think we must have broken something and had to tinker up our engine. The conductor was soothing, but uncommunicative. It was seven-thirty when I descended, the only passenger at our insignificant station in the pitch darkness and rain, without an umbrella and wearing that precious new hat. No turn felt to meet me, not even a station hack. To be sure, I hadn't telegraphed the exact time of my arrival. But still, I did feel rather neglected. I had sort of vaguely expected all one hundred and thirteen to be drawn up by the platform, scattering flowers and singing songs of welcome. Just as I was telling the station man that I would watch his telegraph instrument while he ran across to the corner saloon and telephoned for a vehicle, there came whirling around the corner two big searchlights aimed straight at me. They stopped nine inches before running me down, and I heard Sandy's voice saying, "'Well, well, Miss Sally McBride, "'I'm thinking it's o'er time you came back "'to tuck the bit barns off my hands. "'That man had come three times to meet me, "'on the off chance of the trains getting in some time. "'He tucked me and my new hat and bags and books and chocolates "'all in under his waterproof flap, and we splashed off. "'Really, I felt as if I was getting back home again, "'and quite sad at the thought of ever having to leave. "'Mentally, you see, I had already resigned and packed and gone. The mere idea that you are not in a place for the rest of your life gives you an awfully unstable feeling. That's why trial marriages would never work. You've got to feel you're in a thing irrevocably and forever in order to buckle down and really put your whole mind into making it a success. It's astounding how much news can accrue in four days. Sandy just couldn't talk fast enough to tell me everything I wanted to hear. Among other things, I learned that Sadie Kate had spent two days in the infirmary her malady being according to the doctor's diagnosis half a jar of gooseberry jam and heaven knows how many doughnuts her work had been changed during my absence to dishwashing in the officer's pantry and the juxtaposition of so many exotic luxuries was too much for her fragile virtue also our colored cook sally and our colored useful man noah have entered upon a war of extermination the original trouble was over a little matter of kindling augmented by a pail of hot water that sally threw out of the window with for a woman unusual accuracy of aim you can see what a rare character the head of an orphan asylum must have she has to combine the qualities of a baby nurse and a police magistrate the doctor had told only the half when we reached the house and as he had not yet dined owing to meeting me three times i begged him to accept the hospitality of the john greer I would get Betsy and Mr. Witherspoon, and we would hold an executive meeting, and settle all our neglected businesses. Sandy accepted with flattering promptness. He likes to dine outside of the family vault. But Betsy, I found, had dashed home to greet a visiting grandparent, and Percy was playing bridge in the village. It's seldom the young thing gets out of an evening, and I'm glad for him to have a little cheerful diversion." so it ended in the doctor's and my dining tete-a-tete on a hastily improvised dinner it was then close upon eight and our normal dinner hour is six-thirty but it was such an improvised dinner as i am sure mrs mcgurk never served him sally wishing to impress me with her invaluableness did her absolutely southern best and after dinner we had coffee before the fire in my comfortable blue library while the wind howled outside and the shutters banged We passed a most cordial and intimate evening. For the first time since our acquaintance, I struck a new note in the man. There really is something attractive about him when you once come to know him, but the process of knowing him requires time and tact. He is not very gleg at the uptack. I've never seen such a tantalizing, inexplicable person. All the time I'm talking to him, I feel as though behind his straight line of mouth and his half-shut eyes, there are banked fires smouldering inside. Are you sure he hasn't committed a crime? He does manage to convey the delicious feeling that he has. And I must add that Sandy's not so bad a talker when he lets himself go. He has the entire volume of Scotch literature at his tongue's end. Little Ken's the old wife as she sits by the fire, what the wind is doin' on hurly-burly swire, he observed, as a specially fierce blast drove the rain against the window. That sounds pat, doesn't it? I haven't, though, the remotest idea what it means. And listen to this, between cups of coffee. He drinks far too much coffee for a sensible medical man. He casually let fall the news that his family knew the R.L.S. family personally, and used to take supper at 17 Harriet Row. I tended him assiduously for the rest of the evening in a did you once see Shelley Plain? and and did-he-stop-and-speak-to-you frame of mind. When I started this letter... I had no intention of filling it with a description of the recently excavated charms of Robin McRae. It's just by way of remorseful apology. He was so nice and companionable last night that I have been going about today feeling conscience smitten at the thought of how mercilessly I made fun of him to you and Jervis. I really didn't mean quite all of the impolite things that I said. About once a month, the man is sweet and tractable and engaging. Punch has just been paying a social call and during the course of it he lost three little toadlings an inch long. Sadie Kate recovered one of them from under the bookcase, but the other two hopped away, and I'm so afraid that they've taken sanctuary in my bed. I do wish that mice and snakes and toads and angleworms were not so portable. You never know what is going on in a perfectly respectable-looking child's pocket. I had a beautiful visit in Casa Pendleton. Don't forget your promise to return it soon. Yours as ever, Sally. P.S. I left a pair of pale-blue bedroom slippers under the bed. Will you please have Mary wrap them up and mail them to me? And hold her hand while she writes the address. She spelt my name on the place cards, MacBird. Tuesday Dear Enemy, As I told you, I left an application for an accomplished nurse with the Employment Bureau of New York. Wanted! A nursemaid with an ample lap, suitable for the accommodation of seventeen babies at once. She came this afternoon, and this is the fine figure of a woman that I drew. We couldn't keep a baby from sliding off her lap unless we fastened him firmly with safety-pins. Please give Sadie Kate the magazine. I'll read it to-night and return it to-morrow. Was there ever a more docile and obedient pupil than S. McBride? Thursday My dear Judy I've been spending the last three days busily getting under way all those latest innovations that we planned in New York. Your word is law. A public cookie-jar has been established. Also, the eighty play-boxes have been ordered. It is a wonderful idea, having a private box for each child, where he can store up his treasures. The ownership of a little personal property will help develop them into responsible citizens. I ought to have thought of it myself but for some reason the idea didn't come. Poor Judy! You have inside knowledge of the longings of their little hearts that I shall never be able to achieve, not with all the sympathy I can muster. We are doing our best to run this institution, with as few discommoding rules as possible. But in regard to those play-boxes, there is one point on which I shall have to be firm. The children may not keep in them mice, or toads, or angleworms. I can't tell you how pleased I am that Betsy's salary is to be raised, and that we are to keep her permanently. But the Honorable Cy Wyckoff deprecates the step. He has been making inquiries, and he finds that her people are perfectly able to take care of her without any salary. You don't furnish legal advice for nothing, say I to him. Why should she furnish her train services for nothing? This is charitable work. Then work which is undertaken for your own good should be paid, but work which is undertaken for the public good should not be paid? Fiddlesticks, says he. She's a woman, and her family ought to support her. This opened up vistas of argument which I did not care to enter with the honorable sigh, so I asked him whether he thought it would be nicer to have a real lawn or hay on the slope that leads to the gate. He likes to be consulted, and I pamper him as much as possible in all unessential details. You see, I am following Sandy's canny advice. Trustees are like fiddle strings; they want to be screwed or tight. under them on, but gang your ain' gate. Oh, the tact that this asylum is teaching me! I should make a wonderful politician's wife. Thursday night. You will be surprised to hear that I have temporarily placed out Punch with two charming spinsters who have long been tottering on the brink of a child. They finally came last week and said they would like to try one for a month to see what the sensation felt like. They wanted, of course, a pretty ornament dressed in pink and white and descended from the Mayflower. I told them that anyone could bring up a daughter of the Mayflower to be an ornament to society, but the real feat was to bring up a son of an Italian organ grinder and an Irish washerwoman, and I offered punch. That Neapolitan heredity of his, artistically speaking, may turn out a glorious mixture, if the right environment comes along to choke out all the weeds. I put it up to them as a sporting proposition, and they were game. They have agreed to take him for one month, and concentrate upon his remaking all their years of conserved force, to the end that he may be fit for adoption in some moral family. They both have a sense of humor, and accomplishing characters, or I should never have dared to propose it, and really I believe it's going to be the one way of taming our young fire-eater. They will furnish the affection and caresses and attention that in his whole abused little life he has never had. They live in a fascinating old house, with an Italian garden, and furnishings selected from the whole round world. It does seem like sacrilege to turn that destructive child loose in such a collection of treasures. But he hasn't broken anything here for more than a month and I believe that the Italian in him will respond to all that beauty. I warned them that they must not shrink from any profanity that might issue from his pretty baby lips. He departed last night in a very fancy automobile, and maybe I wasn't glad to say good to our disreputable young man. He has absorbed just about half of my energy. FRIDAY The pendant arrived this morning, many thanks but you really ought not to have given me another. A hostess cannot be held accountable for all the things that careless guests lose in her house. It is far too pretty for my chain. I am thinking of having my nose pierced, Cingalese fashion, and wearing my new jewel where it will really show. I must tell you that our Percy is putting some good constructive work into this asylum. He has founded the John Greer Bank, and has worked out all the details in a very professional and businesslike fashion, entirely incomprehensible to my non-mathematical mind, all of the older children possess properly printed checkbooks, and they are each to be paid five dollars a week for their services, such as going to school and accomplishing housework. They are then to pay the institution, by check, for their board and clothes, which will consume their five dollars. It looks like a vicious circle. But it's really very educative; they will comprehend the value of money before we dump them into a mercenary world. Those who are particularly good in lessons or work will receive an extra recompense. My headaches at the thought of the bookkeeping. but Percy waves that aside as a mere bagatelle. It is to be accomplished by our prize arithmeticians and will train them for positions of trust. If Jervis hears of any opening for bank officials, let me know. I shall have a well-trained President, cashier, and paying teller, ready to be placed by this time next year. Saturday. Our doctor doesn't like to be called enemy. It hurts his feelings, or his dignity, or something of the sort. But since I will persist, despite his expostulations, he has finally retaliated with a nickname for me. He calls me Miss Sally Lunn, and is in a glow of pride at having achieved such an imaginative flight. He and I have invented a new pastime. He talks Scotch, and I answer in Irish. Our conversations run like this: "Good afternoon to ye, doctor, and how's your health today? Very Veril, and how goes it with all the barons? Sure, they all have them doing fun. I'm gay glad to hear it. This soft weather is hard on folk. There's muckle sickness aboot the kintra. Heaven be praised, it has not lighted here." But sit down, doctor, and make yourself at home. Will you be after having a cup o' tea? Oot, woman, I would not hae you fash yourself, but a wee drap o' tea when a coma miss. Whisht is no trouble at all. You may not think that this is a very dizzying excursion into frivolity, but I assure you, for one of Sandy's dignity, it's positively riotous. The man has been in a heavenly temper ever since I came back, not a single crossword. I am beginning to think I may reform him as well as Punch. This letter must be about long enough even for you. I've been writing it bit by bit for three days, whenever I happen to pass my desk. Yours as ever. Sally. P.S. I don't think much of your vaunted prescription for hair tonic. Either the druggist didn't mix it right, or Jane didn't apply it with discretion. I stuck to the pillow this morning. End of part 12.